Bible study tonight. If you want to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter number 2. The book of Romans, chapter number 2, is where we're going to be. We uh, started there last Wednesday and moved through the rest of the text tonight. Romans, chapter 2. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would add your blessings to your word tonight. Help us to rightly divide it, to speak with truth, to speak with love. And Lord, that we might be able to see ourselves uh, in the pages of the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and amen. I uh, began last Wednesday night preaching out of chapter number 2, and we talked about the the self-righteous man being on trial. And uh, in that, we talked about uh, a false form of judgment. Paul begins the chapter by uh, telling us of the inexcusability of the man or the woman that stands in judgment of others, but does not consider themselves. He says, Thou art inexcusable, O man, uh, that judges another uh, when we fail to judge ourselves. And uh, we talked about that false standard of judgment, how that uh, so often it is easy, uh, especially easy in religion, to sit in judgment of others, uh, and not consider ourselves. The problem with that is twofold. First of all, we are not considering ourselves because if we considered ourselves in our own sin, we would be less likely to judge someone else for their wrongs and their sins. Second of all, uh, that places us in the position of God when we begin to judge others. It is not our task or our duty to judge our fellow man, our fellow, our brother, our sister. That is God's job. That is not our job. That is God's. And so we're placing ourselves in the position of God. And that's dangerous and that's hard. But we already talked about the false uh, sense of judgment, the false basis of judgment. We talked about the true basis of judgment. Um, Paul talks about the, uh, the, 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 the works of the flesh and how they cannot merit salvation. Um, that is only earned through and by Jesus Christ and um, that the deeds of the flesh cannot justify us. It's the works of the Spirit that justifies. And we left off in verse 11, and uh, I actually didn't give this to Brother Scott for the slide, but I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pick up in verse number 12, and we're going to see a standard for judgment, a standard for judgment beginning in verse 12. So if there's a false judgment, there's a true judgment, there must be a standard by which men and women are judged. We'll see that in just a minute. But verse 11 says, For there is no respect of persons with God. Verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearer of the law is just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. In verse 11, Paul tells this predominantly Jewish audience that there is no respect of persons with God. Now that would have been a shocking statement to a Jew. They truly did believe that God had respect of persons. They believed they were more favorable than the Gentile world in the eyes of God. They would tell you that God had given them the law and God had given them the temple. God had given them the promises, and God had given them the covenants. And all those things were true. But Paul would argue that those things do not make you more favorable in the eyes of God, 
but they make you more guilty in the eyes of God when you're found with sin. If you have the law, then you're judged by that law. That law doesn't make you more favorable. It, in some regards, makes you more guilty. It was our Lord that told the parable of the, the, uh, the, the, the good and the wicked servants. And He said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. He said, And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much to him they will ask the more. He, he's telling us in this parable that having been given the law and the temple and the prophets and the covenants and the promises, they were really more guilty in the eyes of God when they committed things that broke those covenants and promises and law. The Gentile, on the other hand, didn't have the law. That's what verse number 12 says. He said, for as many as have sinned without the law, that's the Gentile, they did not have the covenants and the promises and the laws. That was not given to them. God gave that to Moses, to the children of Israel. The Gentile did not have those things. Now we must ask the question, does that excuse them from judgment? And Paul would answer, no, that does not excuse them from judgment. Because those that don't have the law are still guilty of sin and they're still going to be judged. He said they'll perish without the law. In fact, he says something very interesting in verse 14 and 15. He said, when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Paul argues that the Gentiles may not have the law, but they have a law. They do not have the law written in tables of stones, but they did have a law written in their heart. Each and every man is born with a light, a light inside of them that God gives them, that judges them as they grow older. Now, Paul in chapter 1 tells us that God gives every man the light of creation. The world testifies that there is a creator. When we look at the mountains and we look at the oceans and we look at a night sky filled with stars, we come to the inevitable conclusion there must be something bigger than us. There has to be a God out there somewhere. All this didn't just happen. There has to be a mastermind. There has to be a creator. There has to be someone that moved and brought all of this into existence. So we say there must be a God. Creation testifies of His existence. But now in chapter 2, Paul says God not only gives every man the light of creation, but He gives every man the light of conscience. Every human is born with an inner sense of right and wrong. It doesn't matter if you're a savage in a jungle or if you grow up in the, the big cities of the United States of America. It doesn't matter. There's an inner voice inside of every person when they are born. Now, I'll say this. Someone said, let your conscience be your God. That is not a good rule of thumb to live by. Because the conscience can be diminished. The conscience can be warped and twisted. 
That light that God gives us can grow very dim. We cannot let our conscience be our God. We must let God's Word be our God. Let the Holy Spirit be our God. But when you were a child, you think about this with me. When you were a child, there were just some things you knew were wrong and some things you knew were right. You just knew that. Nobody had to tell you that. There was just an inner judge that said that is wrong and that is right. That's why when... You broke the lamp. Nobody had to tell you it was wrong to break the lamp. You tried to hide it from mom so she didn't find it. You knew what was right and you knew what was wrong. Now, again, some people suppress that, but God gives those things from birth. Therefore, every man may not have the law, but he has a law. So Paul said that man is inexcusable. He has creation. He has his conscience. Those things can and should lead you to the conclusion that there is a God, that there is a right, there is a wrong. He said that that man's inexcusable. Verse 16, he carries on and says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Now, so here it is. Here's the standard for judgment. Every man is going to be judged. The Gentile... Now, that does not have the law. We might think again about the savage in the jungle somewhere versus you and me that are sitting in a church with a Bible in our lap. That man in the jungle, the savage, he's going to be judged because he has some light. He has creation. He has a conscience. But you and me that sit in a church, hold the Bible in our lap, have been exposed to the Word of God, we will be judged even greater because we have greater light. Does that make sense? One man will be beaten with few stripes because he was given little, and another man beaten with many stripes because he was given much. But both men will be judged. And this is the basis of judgment. Verse 16, he said that the, 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 the judgment that God is going to hold all men accountable to, the good and the bad, is twofold. First of all, we will be judged by Jesus Christ. That's what he says in our verse. He said, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. To be judged by Jesus Christ means to be judged by the standard of Jesus Christ. That is the standard. You're not the standard and I'm not the standard. Although we make ourselves the standard when we begin to judge others. I am better than this and that. I don't do what they do. I do this better than they do. But you're not the standard, and I'm not the standard. Jesus Christ and His teachings are the standard. Jesus Christ was perfect, and He was sinless. I can't measure up to that, can you? I can't measure up to perfect and, and sinless. Jesus was perfect. His teachings, His teachings were high and holy. The law said, when Moses gave it to the children of Israel, the law said, thou shalt not kill. And you say, well, preacher, I've got that one in the bank, baby. I have not murdered anybody. I've thought about it a time or two, but I've never followed through with it. I'm good. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter number 5, said, the law said you shall not kill, but I say you shouldn't be angry with your brother without a cause. The law said don't commit adultery. He said, I've never done that, preacher. But Jesus said, don't even look on a woman to lust after her. And it would go the other way, don't look on a man to lust after him. You see, that standard is high and it's holy. 
I'm not going to ask you if you've ever had an angry thought or an inappropriate thought because I don't want to know the answer. But you know the answer. And he said, you are going to be judged and the standard by which you will be judged is the standard of Jesus Christ. And that's a hard standard. It doesn't matter how religious these Jews believe themselves to be. They can't live up to that standard. You see, they thought themselves better. They were shocked when Paul said, God is no respecter of persons. We have all these advantages. We are better than them. But being better than them doesn't meet the standard of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul says, not only will we be judged based on the standard of Christ, he said we'll be judged based on the secrets of our heart. Oh boy, it's at the end of verse, or he shall judge the secrets of men's hearts by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. On the day of judgment, the secrets of men's hearts are revealed. You say, what does that mean? Well, I believe that on the day of judgment there will be many people who did things in the name of good and right, but did them for the wrong reasons. They did them for selfish reasons, did them for various reasons, but not the right ones. There are many that look very good, look very righteous on the outside, but on the inside they're full of sin. Do you want the secrets of your heart revealed? I know that I wouldn't. Have you ever give something or done something for someone, but did it so that you could get a pat on the back or the recognition for it? That's doing a good thing for the wrong motive. There, there, there are people that do that. H- have you ever met somebody that if you looked at them, they had on the, the right type of clothing and they had the right haircut and they carried the right Bible and they said the right things, but you get them in the right situation and out of the heart, the, the, out of the heart, the mouth speaketh, and some things start coming out of their heart and out of their mouth that you say, well, that's not right. They judge everybody else. They're angry and they're bitter. They gossip. You see, God's judging the heart, not the outward appearance, but the inner man. It is the inner man that God sees and that God judges. Now, I believe that a good tree brings forth good fruit, I believe a good well brings forth good water. So I believe if you get right on the inside, it comes out on the outside. But there are a lot of professional actors in religion. They're very good at the outside. But they forget about the inside. They They wouldn't dare do some of the things they judge other people for. But in their judging, they're showing that their heart is not right with God. And Paul said we will all be judged and the standard by which we are judged is not the thing we spend so much time talking about, but it is rather the standard of Christ and what is in our heart. So there is a standard for judgment. Number two, there's a problem with judgment. There's a problem with judgment. Verse 17 Behold, thou art called a Jew, and resteth in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, 
and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind and a light to them that are in darkness, and an instructor of, of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through ba- breaking the law dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Now, I told you last Wednesday night that there's some debate as to who Paul's talking to in verse 1 through verse 16. But there is no debate who Paul's talking to beginning in verse 17. Paul is talking to the Hebrew. He's talking to the Jew. It was Dr. John Phillips that wrote about this passage. The heathen is a man with a perverted religion. The hypocrite is a man with a pretended religion. And the Hebrew is a man with a powerless religion. These Hebrews had a zeal in their religion, but their religion did not know Christ. And so their religion was powerless. I read these verses, and and they were convicting to me. I want you to notice the, the advantages that Paul says that they have. Paul says, you're called a Jew. You rest in the law. You boast in God. You know the will of God. You are instructed in the law. From from their birth, these men and women were taught in the synagogues, taught to keep the Sabbaths, trained the rites of religion. They learned to be separated, and they learned it all from their very birth. There were other people that were born into great darkness, but they were born into great light. Again, let me quote Dr. Phillips. He goes on to say it is a solemn thing to have access to truth, to have been born into a family where the things of God are common knowledge and where the Bible is a well-read book. Such privileges are weighted with awesome responsibilities and woe betide the person who takes them for granted. These men and women were teaching others, leading others, persuading others, but there was something lacking in their own life. Paul said, you are a guide to the blind, you are a light in darkness, you have corrected the thoughts of the immature, you have taught babes, you have the knowledge of law and truth, but I want to know something in verse 21, 22, and 23. Let's look at it again. Thou thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? They had all of the advantages that they could have hoped for, yet they did not practice what they preached. I'm afraid oftentimes our preach is a whole lot better than our walk. We sit in judgment of others while at the same time excusing ourselves for the things that we do. Now I understand that these verses were written to the Jews, but there's application for you and me in the church. Let me ask you this, do you practice what you preach? 
I mean, you know, when it's just you, when you're by yourself, or when you're not around a group of church people. It's not Sunday, it's Monday or it's Friday. Do you practice what you preach? The things you say you believe, the things you say you stand for, do you actually live up to those? Are you relying on your goodness or the goodness of Christ? Are you judging others for things that, well, if you were honest, you're guilty of yourself? Paul said to this church in verse 24, he said, The name of God is actually blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is blasphemed because you preach one standard but live another standard. May it never be said of us that we have blasphemed the name of God because we are living a life of double standards. I'm not saying it's wrong to have standards. I think standards are good. You know me better than that. But what I'm saying is you can't have exterior standards and interiorly live something contrary to what you say you believe. You can't be one way around one group of people and another way around another group of people. You can't be one man or one woman on Sunday and another man or another woman when you're at work during the week. Because in so doing, by naming the name of Christ and then not living up to that name, you are actually blaspheming His name. So there's, a, there's definitely a problem here. Verse 25, For circumcision, verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he's not a Jew, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inward, uh, inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. In the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Circumcision was a great mark that symbolized the covenant that God made with Abraham and the Jewish people. The covenant was passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac and Ishmael to their children and their children and their children. The outward mark that God gave Abraham of circumcision um, eventually became looked upon with great pride by the Jewish people. They were physically different than everybody else around them. And, and sadly, that physical mark eventually become more important than the symbolic thing that it represented. Circumcision was given to Abraham as an outward sign of an inward work. God had made some promises to Abraham. I promise you a child and I promise you a country. And Abraham said, I believe that. I believe God. And God gave him that symbol as a mark of something that had taken place in his heart. Paul said, was not our father Abraham justified by faith? 
Faith justified him. And then God gave him a symbol to show what had been done in his heart. Paul now tells these Jews that if they become more dependent on the outward than they are dependent on the inner, then there's a real problem. In fact, he says, the Gentiles that don't have the outer mark are more righteous if they do the things contained in the law than those of you who have the mark but don't do the things contained in the law. Let me give you a a simple illustration. 20 plus years ago, me and Davina said our our, I do's and we got married. And since that day, I have wore a visible representation of something that happened on that day. A commitment that we made to one another. And that commitment is visible in my life by the way of a wedding band. But, the fact that I've got a wedding band on, if I wear the wedding band, but I'm talking to another woman, or I'm in a physical relationship with another woman, the wedding band doesn't mean anything, does it? You see, the commitment is more important than the visible sign. So who would be better? Me wearing a wedding band but being in an inappropriate relationship or someone that doesn't wear a wedding band but is faithful there to, the, to the commitment they made to their spouse. Which is better. The visible representation is good. It says to all the other ladies out there, sorry he's taken because they're just lined up. You know how it goes. But it, the visible representation is good. But the commitment is more important. Right? Okay. So Paul is saying the outward is good, but the inner's better. In fact, if you don't keep the inner, you desecrate the outer. You make a mock of the outer if you don't keep the inner. Okay? To the Jews, that was circumcision. To us, circumcision, we don't think of that in religious rites and religious terms anymore. But what if I was to tell you that your church membership has no bearing on your standing with God? What if I said the fact that you were baptized has no bearing on your salvation? What if I said the fact that you observed the Lord's Supper, which actually was a command given to us, it has no bearing on your salvation? That God is more concerned about the inner man than He is all those outward things. Now all those outward things are good in their place. God commands us to be baptized. He commands us to observe the Lord's Supper. We are Baptist. That is in our fundamentals of our faith. One of the T in Baptist means that we believe in two ordinances. The Lord's Supper and Baptism. Those are good. Church membership, I believe you should do it. I believe every born-again believer should be baptized and join a New Testament local Baptist church. Or a New Testament local church. I'll, I'll even leave the word Baptist off of it. I'm a Baptist. I've got no problem with them. 
but you ought to be a member of a local New Testament Bible-believing. That's better than Baptist. How about that? A local New Testament Bible-believing church. But when we stand before God, whether or not you are a member of a church, whether or not you kept the Lord's Supper, whether or not you were baptized, those things aren't going to matter as much as what you did with Jesus Christ. What you did with Jesus Christ is more important than all those outward things. Outward things are good. They come, but they're not the main thing. And so often, we don't make the main thing the main thing. And our relationship with Jesus Christ is the main thing. We can get the main thing right, and then all the other things will come along with it. So finally, number three. We have a summation of judgment, a summation of judgment. All this is summed up, or maybe I'll say it this way. There's a question about judgment. That's maybe better. There's now a question about judgment. So we've seen the standard. We've seen a problem. And now there's a question. They'll actually ask three. Verse number one, chapter three, verse one. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Y'all thought you was getting out early because I was at the end of the chapter, didn't you? I can read your minds. I know how you work. When you study the last several verses of chapter 2, you can easily see why they would ask this question. What advantage is is there then to being a Jew? If the Jew and the Gentile are on equal footing with God, why even be a Jew? The word prophet in verse 1 means surplus or it means excess what profit what surplus what excess is there in being a Jew over a Gentile well let us not forget that God himself had made the distinction between Jew and Gentile God called Abraham out from a heathenistic people and he birthed in Abraham the the Jewish nation It was God that gave the ritual of circumcision to Abraham. It was was, uh, God that gave them covenants and promises. Uh, They, you know, what, what advantage was there? The truth is that, well, there wasn't any advantage when it come to salvation. God does not ask the lost man, are you... Black, white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. He, he, he asked the lost man, what will you do with Jesus Christ? But once you know Jesus Christ, God starts to work on all those other things. There are advantages. There are advantages to being a part of a local Bible-believing church. There are advantages of being baptized. There are advantages of keeping the Lord's Supper. Those are a badge to the world that you have a relationship with Christ. He said in verse number 2, Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The truth is that there were advantages to being a Jew. The Jewish people had been given God's Word. They had been tasked with communicating God's Word to the world. God had given them promises. When you read the Old Testament, you have to agree that God made certain promises to the Jews. He, He did. Just like He made promises to us, He made promises to them. 
There are some that claim, by the way, that the church is an extension of the nation of Israel, and that is not true. I, 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 I don't believe that at all. God made certain promises to the Jews, and He plans on fulfilling those promises. There are advantages, Paul says. Verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So first of all, they ask, what advantage is there? And there is advantages. We've got to be honest, we have certain advantages. It was an advantage for you to be born into the family you was born into. I'm, I am here because, more than likely, I, I, because of the family I was born into. That, that was an advantage. I was born with a Bible you know, in my home. I was born with a preacher in my ear. Those are advantages, a godly heritage. Now, those don't make us better than anybody else, but there were advantages. They said, well, what, what advantages? Then second, they ask, the second question they ask in verse number three is, well, what if, what if we don't believe? D- does our unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Does, does unbelief cancel out God's goodness or God's promises? If we think about this in a linear fashion, God had made promises to the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation had received these promises, and then the Jewish nation failed to live up to those standards or those promises. Now the question is, does that annul those promises? Do they go away? The answer to that is no. Just because the Jew wasn't right doesn't mean that God wasn't right. The nation failed to live up to God's standards, but God still fulfilled His promise. They were wicked and they were evil, but God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that He would send a Messiah, and He was faithful to that promise, even though they were wicked and they were evil. They didn't live up to the standard, but God still was faithful to His promises. Verse number 4, God forbid, there's the answer, God forbid, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. A man who claims the unfaithfulness of man cancels out the faithfulness of God is literally calling God a liar. God's promises cannot be changed. John wrote this in 1 John 5.10. He said, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness himself, and he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. God made promises. The nation of Israel wasn't faithful to those promises, but God still was. All right, In like manner, God has made promises to us. And what you do with those promises determines whether you believe God or you call God a liar. So that's pretty strong language, but, but that's the way that it is. Let's see how serious it is. God made this promise. We know this one. This is an easy one. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise, is it not? God gave His Son, and if we believe in His Son, He gives us eternal life. That is a promise. Now the question is, what's a man or a woman going to do with that promise? Well, if they believe God, then they accept that. But by not accepting that, they're calling God a liar. He goes on to say in verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God made a promise. 
And God is good on that promise, whether you take him up on it or not. God said, I promise you, I will give you my son, and if you believe in him, I will give you eternal life. Now, you can choose to reject that. Does that make God a liar? No. God was faithful to his promise. He sent his son. His son is offering forgiveness to all that will believe. You can choose to reject it, but that doesn't make God a liar. God was still faithful to his word. And they're saying, well, if we don't believe it, does that cancel out what God promised? No, it doesn't cancel out what God promised. God's still faithful. Well, they'll ask one more question. Well, what if our unbelief magnifies the faithfulness of God? Then shouldn't we just sin a bunch? Because the more we sin, the more it shows how faithful God is. Verse 5. For if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. So if our unrighteousness, by the way of contrast, magnifies the righteousness of God, is God even fair judging us? Because our unrighteousness magnifies His righteousness. And that's a tricky subject. Some people actually struggled with that in Paul's day. Some people struggle with it in our day. Paul would write about it again in chapter 6, verse 1, and he would say, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if I sin and God gives grace to forgive my sin, shouldn't I sin a bunch? Because that means God would give a bunch of grace. The question in Romans 6, 1 in the Greek is phrased in the negative uh, context. It, it demands a negative answer. God is not glorified by man's unfaithfulness. Seems ridiculous to even imagine that, but some people believe it. Paul is saying, your unrighteousness does not magnify God's righteousness. God wants you to be holy and right in His eyes. God forbid, verse 6, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? If sin reveals the grace of God and if sin somehow brought glory to God, then God wouldn't be right in judging us. Here's the problem with this logic. We all believe that somebody should be judged. We do. We all believe that somebody, somewhere, should be judged. If I was to ask you the question whether or not you believe that a child abuser should be judged, I don't think I'm going to get any debate on that in this congregation tonight. Somebody that harms an innocent child, should they be judged? And, and everybody in here is going to say, absolutely. Some of you might say, i got a rope, I'll tie them to the bumper of my car right now. We, we've got no problem. That person should be judged. We believe somebody should be judged. We're just not so sure that we should be judged. Judge them. Judge them for what they did. But don't judge me. They deserve it, but we're more empathetic to ourselves. We let ourselves slide. So we believe somebody should be judged. But what they're trying to do is disprove that God is right in judging. But God is right. God will judge the world, verse 6. Because all of us have sinned. All of us have failed to live up to the standard. 
no matter how good you are in comparison to that person, you may never do some of the ugly, wicked things that will be done under the darkness of this city tonight. You may never do those things, but you've done your things. God will judge the world. For if, verse 7, for if the truth of God hath more bounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet judged as a sinner? My, if my wrong brings glory to God, is God right in judging me? And not rather, verse 8, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. If sin brings glory to God, then God shouldn't judge sin. And that is a false teaching. And that is absurd. Paul is exis- insisting that God must judge sin. That's what verse 2 is all about. Verse one and ver- or chapter 1 and chapter 2, I should say, is all about the fact that God has to judge sin. In chapter 1, it is the wicked that God will judge. In chapter 2, it's the holier than thou do-gooder that God will judge. In chapter 1, it's the man down here on the bottom. In chapter 2, it's the man that thinks that he's up here. And all of us are found guilty in the eyes of God. Well, where does that leave us? Well, we'll not continue on tonight. But next Wednesday night, Paul is going to take this a step further. Chapter 3, and he's going to say there's none righteous. No, not one. Chapter 1, the wicked the wicked world. Chapter 2, the, the, the righteous world man in in the synagogue they're all guilty before God our tongues are full of cursing our feet are swift to shed blood we're going to be in a pickle we're going to be in a pickle at the end of chapter 3 but God is not Paul's not going to leave us there it won't be long we'll get to chapter 4 and he's going to say but there is justification by faith in Jesus Christ he'll give us an answer Lord we love you Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to 